This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly sermon podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's sermon. Well, there you have it. There's the question, what is God like? Actually, I guess the question we have to ask before, what is God like? We've got to answer the question, does God really even exist? Is God real or is He just a figment of our imagination? Is He something that we created in our collective consciousness? Does God exist? Certainly, those, that's, a, that's, a, that's a fair question. It's an interesting question and a question that we need to, to look at and to provide some good answers for, reasonable answers. For those of you who I haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Bob and I'm the associate pastor here at New Life. And uh, to all of you, welcome to church as we launch off on a new series, as Justin mentioned. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at the case for Christianity. We're going to talk about, does it, does it make logical sense and rational sense to believe in Christ? Or is Christian religion, is it just something we need to, to check our brains at the door when we pick up our program and, and sit down and listen? This series is going to have four parts, as Justin mentioned. Today we're talking about a case for God. Next week we'll be talking about a case for the Bible. The following week is a case for Jesus Christ. And then finally on Easter Sunday, Easter morning, we're going to get together and we're going to talk about a case for life after death. So for all you left brain CSI types, this, uh, this series should be right up your alley. Uh, let me invite you, if you haven't done so yet, to pull out your New Life notes. You'll find them in your program, and uh, you can follow along that way and jot down some notes if you'd like to do that. But before we get going this morning, I need to make a confession. Actually, let me ask you a question first. There's two types of people. There's your, your thinkers and there's your feelers, right? The, the thinkers are the more logical, analytical type, and the feelers are more those intuitive type people. Let me ask, how many of you are the, the feelers, the intuitives? You can put your hand up. Yeah, go ahead. How many of you are the thinkers? Yeah, thinkers always take a longer time to put their hand up. <laughs> oh, let me think about that. How should I answer that? Hmm. The feelers are right there. I'm in. Yep, let's go. Either that or the feelers are the ones who never raise their hand. I'm not going to raise my hand. I don't feel like it. <laughs> don't like to raise my hands in church. All right, here's my confession. And uh, sorry, it's not too juicy. See, most of the areas in my life, I'm a thinker. I'm a thinker. I like to hear a good argument. When the occasion is right, I like to participate in a good argument. But I like to have things laid out logically. I like to be persuaded except when it comes to my relationship with God. Except when it comes to my understanding of who God is. In that case, man, I'm pretty much a full-on feeler. I don't know, maybe it's just my feminine side comes out when I talk about God. See, most of my understanding about God and most of my convictions about how I should live my life are more intuitive than they are logical per se. So how is that a confession? Well, let me, um, let me read to you the premise of the focus of today's message that I'm supposed to speak to you about. Okay, listen up. It says, this sermon will explore, this sermon will explore some basic 
classic and most infutable reasons to believe in the existence of an eternal, all-powerful God. They will include the following areas of reasoning. Cosmo cosmological, the, lo the law of cause and effect as it relates to the existence of material things. Teleological, the concept that intelligent design requires the existence of an intelligent designer. Morality, the concept that a supreme being and universal moral, moral code exists in every culture throughout history points to the eternal moral code that was created and designed by a moral God. Now, I'm sure some of you are very excited about that description, right? Get goosebumps and all. I, however, struggle how to pronounce those words, let alone get excited about a teaching that talks about the cosmological reasons for God and the teleological reasons for God. You know, I'll tell you, in one of the bigger ironies in my life, I actually have a Master of Science degree. Who would have thunk? Granted, it's in counseling, but nevertheless, it is a master's in science. But the reality is that's kind of not how my mind works. That's not how I approach things, especially, as I said, when it comes to my understanding of who God is and how God reveals himself to us. Well, so how do we move on from here? Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to present to you four very traditional philosophical and scientific arguments or lines of reasoning for the existence of God. Hopefully that'll engage you thinker types. And then I'd like to finish up with a, a more intuitive argument for the existence of God for us feeler types. Fair enough? All right. Well, let me preface my comments with this. You know, I find it somewhat interesting that we even ask this question so often, does God exist? And I, and I say that because time and time again, study after study, 90 plus percent of the people all around the world when they're asked if they believe in God or in some kind of supernatural higher power, 90 plus percent over and over again say yes, they believe in the existence of God. And I would assume here in church that percentage is probably even a little bit higher in fact, I would wager if I was the petting type that there'd probably only be a handful, maybe a few people here this morning that would say that they say that they would say that they definitively that they do not believe in God or some form of God. But still, I think this, this question, does God exist, I think it's an important question to address. Though I'd also like to put out one little caveat before I start into the message, before we move forward, and, and that's this. I don't believe that this morning that I can prove to you that there's a God. I don't think it can be proven this morning that God exists. I also don't think it can be disproved. Can convincing arguments be made for the existence of God? Yes. Matter of fact, that's what I hope to share with you this morning. But here's the, the basic premise that we need to go into this message. It's this. The Bible tells us that we must accept the fact that God exists by faith. As we talk about the existence of God, if he's real or not, we've got to understand that it's not some argument that I'm going to present that's going to convince you.
Because we must accept the fact that God exists by faith. Listen to what it says in Hebrews. It is impossible to to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Look at it this way. If God wanted to, if God so choose, he could show up right here this morning. He could come up and we could all touch him and look at him and hear him speak. But if he chose to do that, it wouldn't require any faith to believe in him. And evidently, God has determined that faith is a better way to go in our spiritual journey. Look what Jesus said to one of his disciples. Then Jesus said to him, or told him, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean that there's not evidence for God. Quite the contrary. But all the evidence in the world is not going to prove to somebody that God is real. That will only come to those who choose to believe. That will only come to those who choose to believe by faith. So I may not be able to convince you this morning or prove to you this morning that God exists, but I do hope to persuade you that God exists. Here's the first line of reasoning that we're going to look at for the existence of God. We're going to look at what's called the ontological argument for God. There it is. And it goes like this. It's basically pure reasoning. If God, by definition, means that of which no greater can be conceived. Okay, if the definition of God says that it is a being, the greatest of which can be conceived, the most that our minds could come up with and identify and think of, by definition, that is God, then the question needs to be asked, is it greater to exist or not exist? See, would you agree with me that something that actually exists is far greater than something that doesn't exist? For example, who's greater, Superman or a fireman? It's a fireman, people. Superman doesn't exist. (laughs) Right? It's a fireman. He's real. So by definition, it's argued, according to this line, that the greatest conceivable being must then exist. If God didn't exist, then he would not be the greatest conceivable being. And that would contradict his very definition of who God is, which is the greatest of that which can be conceived. You follow that? It sounds like it's circular reasoning. And in some ways it is, but follow the logic. The ontological argument for God says that if our definition of God is accurate, the greatest being that can be conceived of, then by definition... God must exist. Second, a second rationale for the existence of God is the teleological argument. And this argument says that since the universe displays such amazing design, there must be a divine designer. Teleological comes from the root word teleos, which means purpose or goal. The idea that Here's the idea. It takes a purposer to create something with a purpose. Right? If you see something that has a purpose, 
then it required that somebody created that for a reason or for a purpose. So we see that things that are obviously intended for a purpose, if we see something that's obviously intended for a purpose, then there must be something or someone who had had a cause or a reason to create it. In other words, this is it. The design implies a designer. You know, we, we instinctively assume this and realize this all the time in our, in our daily lives. Wait, what's the difference between the Grand Canyon and Mount Rushmore? Obviously, one is designed and one is not. The Grand Canyon was clearly formed, and I obviously can be argued designed by God, but the, the Grand Canyon was formed by a non-rational, natural process over a period of time. When, when you look at Mount Rushmore you know it was created by an intelligent being, that somebody created that with a purpose. There had to be a designer when we look at the design. In fact, in no scientific field is design ever considered spontaneous. It always implies a designer. The greater the design, the greater the designer. So the argument becomes, taking the assumptions of science, that the universe would, the universe would, again, by scientific definition, require a designer behind itself. Okay? In other words, that when we look at the universe, we see the purpose and the design of the universe, it would necessitate that behind the universe is a designer, a supernatural designer. Listen to how if, uh, um, just lost his name, Dr. Seuss, thank you. Listen how Dr. Seuss may explain the existence of God. Give a look. A long time ago on a planet so bare, some water and dirt that mix up with the air, some sand and some rocks to make it just right, the stage was all set in the deep of the night. A bolt of white lightning, a great peal of thunder, and suddenly there was a marvelous wonder. The rocks yielded metal, the sand turned to glass, and as the years flew, a new thing came to pass. The metal formed gears, the glass a watch face, and little by little things fell into place. The parts came together just like a good rhyme, with ticks and with tocks and with hands that tell time. A beautiful watch began ticking one day, formed all by itself, in a wonderful way. Ridiculous story, you say with a grin. Impossible, laughable, surely a sin. A watch needs a watchmaker, that's plain to see. A designer and builder that makes it for me. Now all life is made of some interesting stuff. Cells of all shapes, 
like blobs filled with fluff. But looks are deceiving, and what we find there are factories and highways and gadgets to spare. Assembly lines, robots, electrical cable, libraries, software. Just look, if you're able. The marvels we see with a microscope stare make a watch look so simple. We dare not compare. Now the doctors from Oxford say cells came by chance, from goo down to you, in a beautiful dance. What's wrong with their thinking to have such odd notions that cells could just happen from dirt and warm oceans? A cell and its wonders amaze all who see. And a cell like a watch, by chance, cannot be. Those cells can build hummingbirds, agile and free. Bumblebees, snails, my backyard oak tree. A woodpecker built with a jackhammer nose, lightning bug, monkeys, a beautiful rose, and beetles with bombs that give frogs a surprise. Chameleons with camouflage and some weird eyes. All nature on Earth is so perfectly fine. We have to admit that it's all by design, and our Maker owns everything, both great and small. He's the masterful watchmaker, Lord over all. All right, maybe a little corny, but it makes a great point. See, clearly, every life form in life's in the Earth's history has been highly complex. Think about it: a single strand of DNA equates to the volume of one Encyclopedia Britannica. The human brain is approximately 10 billion gigabytes in capacity. You ever walked into a room and see a computer sitting there and think? Boy, I bet that was put together by a random explosion at an electrical factory. Right? No, of course not. We, the thought wouldn't even it wouldn't even enter our mind. We wouldn't think electronics factory blew up and all of a sudden a computer existed. It would take a designer, somebody who had a purpose and who created it. Consider the Earth, our globe. Its weight has been estimated at six sextrillion tons. Six trillion. I just said sex in church. That's a six with twenty-one zeros after it. Yet it's precisely tilted at twenty-three degrees. Any more? Any less? And they say that the seasons would all be lost into this melted polar flood. And though our globe, it resolves at a rate of one thousand miles per hour, or twenty-five thousand miles per, ta- per day. That's nine million miles per year. And yet, with all that spinning, none of us are tossed off. It argues for a creator. Listen to this powerful quote. A quote that supports this line of reasoning for the existence of God, and it comes from none other than Charles Darwin. 
In a moment of candor, he wrote this. He was studying the human eye and doing extensive research on the human eye, and he wrote this. He said, to suppose that the human eye, with so many parts all working together, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Unquote. Something so intricate, something so, so marvelous and wonderful begs for a designer. Listen to what it says in Romans. Romans 1, 19 and 20, it says, They knew the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Though every, through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. How about in the Old, in the Old Testament? From David the psalmist. He wrote this. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word, yet their voices, yet their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. A third logical argument for the existence of God is called the cosmological argument. It derives from observing things or observing the world around us or our cosmos, if you will. It begins what is most obvious, and it's this. Here's their basic premise, that things exist. Things exist. And for a thing to exist, they must have come from somewhere. In other words, an effect must have a cause. The universe and everything in the universe, including you and I, we are the effect, right? We had a beginning, something that was started. And so there must be something that caused these things that caused us to come into existence. Ultimately, there must be something uncaused that creates or makes the caused. That uncaused, it is argued, is God. This argument goes all the way back to, to Plato and has been used by philosophers and theologians ever since then. And then about in the 20th century, the scientists finally got on board when they confirmed that the universe, the universe in which we live, had a beginning. They acknowledge that the universe hasn't always existed, but there's a timeline, and if you go to the beginning of that timeline, you can see where the universe began. So the cosmological argument for the existence of God says that all things have a be- that have a beginning had to have a cause. Some people argue, well, one thing may have caused another thing which led to another thing. But still that begs the question, what caused the initial thing? Right, it's the chicken and the egg dilemma. Right? What came first? You need a chicken to lay an egg, but you can't have a chicken unless you have an egg. Right? The egg can produce the chicken, and the chicken can produce the egg, but at some point when you keep going back, there had to be a beginning to that. At some point, you needed to have something that got it going. You needed a first cause. 
a first cause, one thing that had no beginning. That first cause is God. In Genesis here, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Look at John, John 1, 3. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The cosmological argument for God. Number four, we have the moral argument for the existence of God. Now the moral argument begins with the fact that all people recognize some form of moral code. In that, People recognize that there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. Every culture throughout history has had some form of law. Every civilization has had this sense of right and wrong. Right? Murder, lying, stealing, immorality has almost universally been rejected in every culture. In fact, every time somebody gets into an argument over what is right and what is wrong, they're appealing to a law. They're appealing to a higher law, a law that they assume that everyone is aware of, that everyone holds to, a law that is not freely arbitrated, arbitrarily changed. See, the idea of right and wrong implies a higher standard of law. And so this line of reasoning says that the existence of laws require a lawgiver, or a universal law requires a universal lawgiver. Because moral law transcends humanity. A universal law requires a universal lawgiver. But where does this sense of right and wrong, this moral code or this moral law, where does it come from? Well, this argument says it comes from God. See, we see in, in even in those most remote tribes that have been separated out or been cut off from the rest of civilization, when those cultures are observed, they have the almost identical moral code as the, quote, civilized world. Where then does this idea of what is wrong, what is right, and what is wrong, where does it come from? In Romans 2, it says that the moral law or consciousness comes from the lawgiver, from God. Look what it says. It says, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even out, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. If this scripture is true, and I believe it is, then we should expect to see exactly what we've been talking about, a consistency across cultures, across time, where there's a moral law of what is right and what is wrong that every society embraces and ascribes to. If that scripture is true, we should see what anthropologists prove over and over again and find over and over again. The argument says that without God, there would be no objective basis for universal morality. 
I don't know uh, if you've seen the show that's called The Moment of Truth. It's a new show on Fox. And in this concept that culture is the same, I'm going to show you some pop culture. And here's the basis of the show. They get a contestant who comes on, and they're going to ask the contestant a series of questions. And every time the the contestant answers truthfully, they win money. Well, they hook the contestant up to a lie detector to determine if they're telling the truth or not. And then they begin to ask them all sorts of questions. And not only do they ask them these questions, they bring their family in to sit and watch and listen to them answer the questions. Well, I've brought along a clip from one of the shows. I actually haven't seen the show, um, but I watched it on YouTube, a clip of it from YouTube. And it's really interesting because I think it goes right to the heart of this moral code or this moral law that we're talking about that is written within the hearts. Because this lady here, she's the contestant, and she's just been through a series of questions where they've asked her, have you ever stolen anything? She said, yes. So she moves on and they gets more money and they ask her things if she was in love with anybody else when she married her husband. And they, all these lines of questions that she, is she answers if she thinks, you know, her mother is fat and then she answers. And if she answers it honestly, she makes more money as she progresses along. Well, here we are now. And I'm going to show you two questions that she's asked. If she answers this right, I think she wins 200000 and then she goes for 500000 Listen to these two questions. Think about what we've been talking about, about the moral law written on our conscience. Take a look. This one's further than that. You probably know what's coming next. I think so. And you want it anyway. Question 16. Since you've been married, have you ever had sexual relations with someone other than your husband? That's your husband. I wish the button was still there. Yeah, telling me. I'm going to have to say yes. That answer is... True. Okay, Lauren. Two more gets you $200,000. But be careful. One mistake, you lose it all. Are you feeling like you should go for it now? Yes. Okay. Question 17. Do you think you're a good person? Honestly, I think I am a good person. So your answer is? Yes. That answer is... It's true. It's true. False. Interesting, huh? Intellectually, 
She could argue. But internally, there's a code that's written on our heart. Moral code. Leads us to the conclusion that there's a lawgiver who writes his code on our heart. Well, the final and last argument that we're going to look at for the existence of God, it's one we're going to move from the, from the logical-based arguments to our experience. Call this the intuitive argument for the existence of God. Listen to what it says in, listen to what it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He, God, has put eternity in the hearts of men. God has put the idea of eternity within our hearts. There is something deep down in our beings at the very core of our psyche that recognizes that there is something special beyond this life. There is something special beyond this world. And while people may ignore this reality with their intellects, but God's presence in us, God's presence through us, tells us that he is there. We just know. We just know that there's a God. In the book of Romans, the very beginning of the book, it says that deep down, every single human being knows in his heart or in her heart that there is a God. The text tells us that God himself takes the responsibility to reveal himself himself to each and every one of us, to every single man, to every single woman, to every single child. Not only does the external world clearly give us clues to the existence of God, but God takes personal responsibility for tapping us on the heart, on your heart and on my heart, and revealing to each and every one of us that in fact he is there. Listen to what it says. It says, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. You know, I would argue that, that based on this scripture, as well as numerous other scriptures throughout the Bible that say this same thing, as well as my own personal experience and observations, that everyone knows that God exists. Everyone knows that God exists. So then why would, why would some people say that, or why would they live like God doesn't exist? Well, the answer to that question is the key understanding for today. Why would people, why would anyone deny that God exists? You know, let me interrupt myself for a moment and say that what I'm going to talk about, the next point I want to make is, is in no way meant to be belittling. It's not meant to be judgmental or condemning. I want you to hear my heart in this, friends. If what I'm going to point out, if it applies to you and to your life, I say it because I think you're being ripped off. I think you're being ripped off and I want you to know joy. I want you to know freedom. 
I want you to know forgiveness. I want you to know acceptance. I want you to know love. I want you to know God. Why would somebody deny that God exists? Listen to what it goes on in Romans to say. It says, people who push the truth away from themselves, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. They traded the truth about God for a lie. Since they thought it was foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their own foolish thinking. See, I believe that people who claim not to believe in God because it's not scientific or people who say that they don't believe in God because there's not enough proof, I don't think they're being fully honest. Not necessarily with me or not with other people. I don't think they're being honest with themselves. See, I think the true reason that that some people say that there's no God or that they don't believe in God is that once that they admit that there is a God, they also have to admit that they are responsible to God. And if God is who God is, then they must also realize that they're going to be accountable for their actions to God. You see, if God didn't exist, then we could do whatever we want to do and we wouldn't have to worry about God judging us. If God doesn't exist, then I can do whatever I get it in my mind to do and I can behave however I want to behave because I don't have to worry that I'll be accountable for those behaviors. I believe that is why so many cling to the position that there is no God. I believe it gives them a false sense of security. It allows them to convince themselves that they can can continue on with a behavior or with an attitude that they know is destructive, they know it's hurtful, but they don't have to deal with it. See, frankly, people find it easier to lie to themselves and others about the existence of God than they do in facing the pain of making unhealthy and immoral behaviors right. It's easier for them to lie to themselves than it is to deal with the issues that they need to make right. So what am I saying? I'm saying that people deny the existence of God because they're afraid that God might want to have a say in how they manage their money. Or God might want to have a say in who they sleep with. Or God might want to have a say in how they spend their time. They exchange the evidence for the truth about God, for the idea that he doesn't exist so that God will stay away from their life, so that God will stay away from their money, and that God will stay away from their time. See, because they're afraid that God may put some demands on them, and they don't want to yield an ounce of control to anybody. They want to hold on to the power. There's all kinds of reasons for somebody saying that there is no God. There's all kinds of reasons for exchanging the truth about God for a lie. What I want to ask you right now is why do some of you hold the position that there is no God? Why do you hold that position? See, personally, I think the arguments for God are pretty sound. 
I think if you just go walk outside and you look around, it's pretty evident that such a beautifully complex creation had a creator. I think it's difficult to deny that there is a God. I guess I need to add this too. That there are, there are honest people who, are really, who really have legitimate questions. Right, they're, they're really seeking and they have legitimate questions about the existence of God and those questions deserve to be asked and they should be answered. And New Life has always been a place where people can be, bring their questions and talk about them and explore them. In fact, we invite those questions here at New Life. This needs to be an honest place where honest seekers can find the answers to the questions that they're looking for and find evidence of proof as to who God is. This should always be a safe place to ask questions. But I want to challenge those who are being dishonest in their questions. Dishonest in the fact that they really don't want to hear the answer. Dishonest in the fact that they really don't want to know what the truth is. Friends, it's not my intent to sound, I don't know, I don't want to sound mean. I'm not trying to sound like some kind of self-righteous jerk. but I see so many people who go through such needless pain in their life. They have this, re- this restless spirit within them and, and they're struggling through life just so they can continue in a behavior that is ultimately destructive. It's ultimately destructive to themselves and it's, it's, it's often destructive to their families as well. So if you'll permit me, let me ask you, why might you be exchanging the truth of God for a lie? Why? What are, you, what are you trying to preserve or what are you trying to protect? Is it your autonomy? Is it your pride? Is it your money? Is it your power? What behavior might you be engaged in right now that it makes it in your best interest to say there is no God? There is no God. There is no God. What behavior has you so tightly in its grip that it would make you exchange the truth about God for a lie? That's a tough question. It's a tough question and it takes a lot of guts to ask yourself that question. The Bible says one day we're going to stand before God a God who is real. How much better to decide today that God is real and align yourself in relationship with that God and yield to the reality of his existence today. It's important. As a matter of fact, it's imperative that you know this. And this is our key truth for this morning. That God not only exists, but he's good. God not only exists, but he's good. He's not the sheriff God. He's not the mechanic God. He's not even the grandfather God, but he is the God who is good. He is the God who has a plan for your life. He is the God who desires to be in relationship with you. The God who has planned an unbelievable eternity for you. The Psalms, it says, taste, taste. Taste and see 
that God is good. In closing, allow me to, uh, to add one last argument for the existence of God. I call it the bonus argument. How do I know that God exists? I know he exists because I experience his love every day. I feel his presence with me as I walk through the day. I know God exists because I speak with him. I know God exists because I've known his love. I feel his presence. I've experienced God's grace. Things have occurred in my life that to me have no other possible explanation than God exists. God has so wonderfully forgiven me. God has so miraculously changed me and changed my life that I can't help but acknowledge and praise his existence. I can't help but continue to tell others about his love and about his goodness. You know, I know that none of the arguments that I've shared with you today about God in and of themselves can persuade anyone who refuses to acknowledge that which seems so obvious to me. See, in the end, belief in God is a decision. It's a statement of faith. It's one which each of us must make for ourselves. But know this. Know this. God wants, God wants to prove himself to you. He wants to prove his goodness. He wants to prove his loving kindness to you. I'd like to close with a challenge. For all of you who are honest seekers, for those of you who are on a spiritual journey and are just trying to figure out, is God real and what does that mean to my life and how do I relate to him? Let me give you this challenge. Continue to seek him with your mind and your heart. Make this search top priority in your life. Come back next week. Listen as Ron continues with this series. Ask the questions that you need to ask. Find the questions that you need answers for. Let God show you how real his love for you is through Jesus Christ. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 15 2, whenever you seek him, you will find him. That's his promise for you. If you've been one of those who have been lying to yourself, can I challenge you to stop today? Would you say no more? Would you be willing to say no more? I'm going to admit that God is real and that I'm going to admit that he is for me and not against me. Second Corinthians 6.2 says, Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Admit that God is real and that he is for you and that he's not against you. John reminds us in his gospel that no one has ever seen God, but God has revealed himself to us in his creation. He has revealed himself to us in his word and he has revealed himself to us in the person and the life of his son, Jesus Christ. Finally, for all of us here today, 
Here's our challenge. Can we commit to keeping our eyes open so that we may see and know God and see God just as he is and experience the fullness of his life and his purpose for our lives? Can we keep our eyes open and can we see God and in response, can we purpose to lay all that we have and all that we are before him? Is that too much to ask? As we see God and as we respond to God, can we purpose to lay all that we have and all that we are before him? We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information and past sermons, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.